How are you guys this morning? Me too. How are you, Ray? Doing good? Okay. When Ray's in that chair, I know everything is good. Uh, Mark chapter 2 is where we will be today, looking at verse 13 through 17. If you don't know, we're moving through the Gospel of Mark, verse by verse, section by section. We looked at Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 12 last week. If you're using one of the church Bibles, Matthew, Mark, Mark is the second Gospel, second book in the New Testament, and page 837 will bring you to Mark chapter 2, verse 13. I titled this message today, Call 911. That may seem strange. I am a little strange, so this will all make sense when I'm done. But if you want to follow along, open your bulletins, and there's an outline in there. So you can kind of see where I'm going. Calling 911 in an emergency can really mean the difference between life and death. The advice is always the same. In an emergency, don't ignore it. Deny it, downplay it, or hope it goes away. Don't try to fix it on your own, but call the professionals. Isn't that what they say? Where's, is, there, is the firefighter in here today? Yeah, she's over there. He's over there. He's, she's the police officer. Oh, there's another one. Good. So, firefighters, what is the first thing that someone should do when they see there is a fire? Run? <laughs> Because they started it, or I. No, they, they need to call the big boys in, right? They need to call the professionals in because what ends up happening typically is they try to handle it themselves and it immediately gets beyond their capacity. So usually the advice is always the same call 911. Then you can try to do something with it, but know that help is on the way because it's going to probably get out of your ability to control. But the reality is, is some people don't make the call. And the consequences are often tragic, or they delay the call. Have you seen that? Have you seen that? In some cases, they simply fail to see the seriousness of the situation that they're in. There was a mother in the news several years ago that faced three to five years in prison for failing to call 911 immediately after she discovered that her daughter had OD'd on drugs. The daughter died five hours later. The judge determined that the mom had been a good parent overall, but made a fatal mistake by not calling 911 sooner. The judge said that the daughter had a substance abuse problem, and the mom previously nursed her through an alcohol overdose, and she thought that she could do it again this time. The prosecutor was a little less understanding, and he said, quote, Brandy, who was the daughter, choked and gagged her way until she slowly suffocated to death. And that's what this defendant ignored throughout the night. She ignored a tremendous risk, a risk that cost Brandy's life. Brandy's mom and the scribes that we're going to read about today in this text before us, they have something in common. They both should have desperately sought help but they didn't think they needed it. They incorrectly believed that they had things under control. And I hope to make sure that you understand exactly what I mean in the next 45 minutes or so. Mark chapter 2. Let's read the text together through verse 17. Just so you know, this is a parallel account of Matthew and Luke. In Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 13 is the same story in that gospel with a little bit different detail. In Luke chapter 5, verses 27 through 32 is the same story, again with a little bit of different detail. But we're reading this morning from Mark chapter 2, verse 13 through 17. He went out again beside the sea, that is, Christ, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. Now, if you've been here a couple weeks, you know this is Jesus' M.O. This is what he does. He did this around the Sea of Galilee. He called four fishermen to do exactly the same thing. He goes after them. He calls men unto himself to follow him, to be his disciples. And what did he do? 
he rose and followed him. Verse 15. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Verse 17. And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This morning we're going to probe the scribe's self-righteous question and Jesus' sobering reply so that hopefully our sinful condition and supreme need will become abundantly clear as we look at this text this morning. That's where we're going. So we're going to start with a self-righteous question. Verse 16. Self-righteous question. I hope to prove to you that that's exactly what it was. That it was motivated by a self-righteousness. Do you know what that is? I'm sure you've experienced it. Maybe you've exercised it. It's a moral superiority towards others. It's putting yourself above them, thinking that you're better than them and that they're below you. Self-righteousness. That you see your own righteousness, but you see everyone else's sin. Yeah, Christians are actually really good at this. Uh, But we'll talk about that in a little bit. So let's analyze this. Scribes, let's start there. And I'm going to look at these three points in your outline to help you understand and come to the same conclusion that this question was self-righteous and the problem with it. We're going to look at the scribes. Look back at verse 16. It says, the scribes of the Pharisees. Now, if you have an older translation like a New King James or a King James Bible, it actually says the scribes and the Pharisees, indicating that there's possibly two different groups here. But the better translation is the scribes of the Pharisees, meaning that these scribes, and let me remind you what scribes are. Scribes were interpreters or teachers of the law. Not like the law that says don't go 55 miles per hour, the civil law. They were teachers and interpreters of God's law, the Torah, the Old Testament, the scriptures that they had, the Jewish Hebrew Bible. They interpreted it and they taught it. These particular scribes, though, belonged to this Jewish religious group known as the Pharisees. These were the scribes of the Pharisees. Not all scribes were Pharisees, but many were. So who were the Pharisees? It's believed that the name Pharisees comes from the word meaning separated. Separated. Just follow along with me and you'll start to see where we're going. The consensus is, the general consensus is, is that the Pharisees regarded themselves or were regarded as the separated ones. As the separated ones. Now, we know that God commanded his people in the Old Testament, in the book of Leviticus, for instance, chapter 19, verse 2, to be holy as he is holy. And it is also a New Testament commandment. In 1 Peter 1:16, it's repeated again. Be holy as your Father in heaven is holy. Holy literally means set apart. Set apart. Distinct. Okay? So these Pharisees were in a sense trying to live separate or set apart lives for God. The problem was in their effort to live holy lives, their focus was wrong. The way they were getting at that was wrong. They focused on rituals or religious procedures and traditions, all of which emphasized the external behaviors. But they neglected the real issue, which was their sinful heart. See, God was calling His people to be separate, to be holy, to come out from among them, But it was a heart change that would ultimately affect their external behaviors and practices. Instead, the Pharisees focused on the external behaviors and practices alone and neglected the real issue, which was their sinful condition and their sinful heart. We know that because in Matthew chapter 15, verse 8, these are the words of Jesus. We don't have to guess 
what was going on with the Pharisees, Jesus tells us. He tells us. This is not me making this up. This is what the Word of God explains. He says, this people, referring to the Pharisees and the scribes, this people, they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They were very religious. That's what I want you to understand. The Pharisees, or the scribes of the Pharisees, were not non-religious people. They were not people who didn't go to church or to worship. They were not people who were not concerned about the law of God. They were actually very religious people. But Jesus is constantly rebuking them. And they are continuing to confront one another and be at odds with one another. Because Jesus is confronting them in their sin. Their sin that they refuse that they actually have. Because their focus is so external. See, their hearts, beloved, were still unchanged. And because of that, they were far from God. Their continual keeping of rules actually led them to deceive themselves into thinking that they were right with God. That they were right with God. And beyond that, to look at others with contempt and actually avoid them, those who did not keep their rules according to their traditions and interpretations of the law. And as a result, these scribes, these Pharisees, failed to see their own sinful condition and desperate need for forgiveness. They considered themselves strong and righteous and everyone else weak and wicked. They were self-deceived and this negatively impacted the way they related to God and the way they related to others. It is the secret sins of the heart, beloved. Let me, let me try to illustrate this for you, what's going on. It would be the same as this. If someone was in a marriage for a long period of time and it appeared on the outside that they did everything right. So, at the sake of getting in trouble, I'm going to tell you what I think right is. <laughs> so, for instance, they held hands. They showed affection towards one another. They told each other they loved each other. They apparently didn't argue. Uh, the husband would open the door for his wife. Yes, that is important. The husband would open the door for his wife. It's not biblical. I'm just, it's my opinion. I can't prove it from the Bible. But he's showing her honor. That's a way of showing honor to the wife. They cared for one another. You see all these things and you say to yourself, wow, they, they have a marriage that honors God. But what you don't see is that the man has a strong lust for other women. And in the private times of his life, he's staring at pornography hour upon hour. And when he's not accessing a computer, he's accessing it in his mind. And he is lusting and thinking about other women. Do those people have a good marriage? They don't, beloved. Are they right with God in that setting? They're not. That man's not right with God. It may look on the outside like everything is nice and clean and pretty, but on the inside, it's devastating. It's no different than someone who, let's say they live a modest life, right? They live a modest life and they have a simple house and they live a simple life and then they have a, a beat-up car. And, and you look at them and you say, wow, those people are not greedy. Right? Those people certainly don't covet. Because, I mean, look at them. Look how they live. They're very modest. They're not trying to get the next new thing. They're not working just to buy stuff. They're not materialistic. How do you know that? What if in their heart of hearts they're dying inside? What if the only reason they don't have nice stuff is because they can't afford it? But if they could, they would load their house to the T. They hate the fact that they drive a lousy car. They hate the fact that they only have two bedrooms. They hate the fact that they live in a 30-year-old house. And they despise God for it. But you think, you think just from the outside that everything's okay. But in their heart, it's filled with covetousness and greed. That's the Pharisees. That's some of us. And 
Jesus says in Matthew 23:27, "Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees! Take warning, for you are like whitewashed tombs." If you read just the whole chapter of Matthew chapter 23, do it on your own time, you'll find Jesus has not a lot of nice things to say about the religious leaders of the day, the ones that everyone looked up to as what it meant to be a follower of God. But Jesus knew something about them that everyone else didn't. Their hearts were far from God. They never dealt with their sin issue. They covered it by keeping the law. He says, you're like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful. But within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. He's talking about a casket. They would wash these tombs in this white kind of material and it would make them actually shine in the sun. They would be brilliant. They would be beautiful in appearance, these tombs, these caskets. But what is inside of a casket? Death. Death. You are dead inside. You are unclean. You are vile. You are filthy. And yet you appear to everyone around you like you are spotless and wonderful. One writer says, while the Pharisees looked down on sinners, Jesus looked for them. So that brings us to point two, tax collectors. I know the text says that sinners is first. They refer to sinners and tax collectors. Jesus, why are you eating with sinners and tax collectors? Let's start with tax collectors. Mark tells us in verse 14 that Jesus calls Levi. And what was he, where was he when he called him? What's the text say? He was at 7-Eleven. He was in a tax booth. He was there because he was working. He was a tax collector. And many tax collectors, the text tells us, came to eat with Jesus. We know in the Gospel of Luke, the parallel account, that after Levi was called by Jesus to follow him, he was excited. He was excited, and so he decided to throw a feast for Jesus, which is what we have going on here, a dinner party. And in the process, he invites his friends Well, tax collectors didn't have many friends outside of other tax collectors. So he invited more tax collectors to the party. Now, to the modern reader, it might seem like no big deal for Jesus to eat with tax collectors. It may even seem strange that this is even an issue. Why why are the Pharisees separating them, segregating them into different groups? Why are they in their own group? And why are they pointing it out as if it's wrong that Jesus is doing it? Why do you eat with sinners, group one, and tax collectors, group two? And notice the Pharisees don't consider themselves to be part of either of those groups. They're like separate from them. Now, a couple things you have to know. Uh, For Jesus to have eaten with tax collectors, again, may may be no big deal to us, but to the Jews, it would have been scandalous. It would have been scandalous. To eat with someone was regarded as a sign and pledge of real intimacy and relationship. Maybe we don't see it that way now, but in that culture, if you broke bread with someone, if you had them over to your home, you ate with them, it was an indication that you were befriending them. You were entering into a relationship with them. For Jesus to be intimate with these types of people was simply too much for the scribes to handle. They were irate. See, tax collectors were put into a category of their own under the general category of wicked or evil. Let me give you an example. Like, we say there's bad people, right? But we separate the categories. We would say there's another level of bad serial killer. You understand what I'm saying? So we got bad people, but these are really bad people, serial killer. Tax collectors are way down here in the eyes of the Jews. Now, I'm going to explain why, because you're probably... Now, I know in some of your minds, maybe tax collectors are way... I'm sorry. I'm sorry, darling. I, I know some tax collectors are down here, but it's for different reasons. It's Well, some of it's for different reasons. Tax collectors are, are nice people, right? They can be nice. <laughs> So here's what's going on. Land and poll taxes were collected directly by the Romans. Now remember, Israel, the nation of Israel, is under Roman occupation. The Romans control them. They're governed by the Romans, and they don't like it. 
Other taxes, like taxes on transported goods or use taxes, like I can give you an example, like fast track. Fast track is in a sense a tax or a toll. You take fast track, you have to pay a fee to take a road. They had those too. Yeah, we get all of our ideas from Rome. They had those too. They would tax you for taking a particular road or transporting goods from one area to the next. These areas of taxation were contracted out to local collectors. Most of them were Jews. Bids would be made by the Roman government to gain the rights to a particular area, almost like a franchise. And the highest bidder would then be rewarded with that area, and they would make money by collecting at least what they paid for the area, and then some. That's where the profit came in. It was a business. So as long as the Romans got their money, they were fine. They could really care less what you do with it. Collect more, that's fine. Collectors like Levi, working for the owner of a particular territory, were expected and paid to collect a certain amount for the owner. He had to make back his investment, and he was expecting to make a profit. But they were notorious for keeping a piece of the action for themselves, putting it into their pocket as they collected. The opportunity for abuse was regularly seized upon. Because there was not much regulation. Do you understand? So you can't go from here to there without paying the tax. And for you, the tax is $10. For the next guy, it's $20. For the next guy, it's $30. Beyond that, tax collectors were considered traitors. The Jewish tax collectors were considered traitors because, remember, they were collecting Roman taxes. Roman taxes. And the Romans were viewed as oppressors. They were viewed as the enemy. I don't know if any of you have seen like Schindler's List or something like that, which recounts the horrors of the treatment of the Jews, the Holocaust. But some of the Jews would actually work for the Germans in keeping the other Jews in line. Are you familiar with this? They would kind of, in a sense, go over to the other side. Just so you know, they were hated, despised by the other Jews that... How dare you? These people are mistreating us, even killing us. And you, to get better treatment, have now gone to the other side and are controlling us and commanding us. It's the same idea. Let me give you some examples of the views Jews had of tax collectors. This is historical. A Jew who collected taxes was disqualified as a judge or a witness in court. They couldn't even, they couldn't, they weren't trusted. So they couldn't be on a jury, they couldn't be a judge. They were expelled from the synagogue. That means they couldn't worship. That was their place of worship. And they were a cause of disgrace to their family. So if you had a Jewish son who became a tax collector, you would probably disown him because of the disgrace he brought on your family. Jews were forbidden to receive money from tax collectors since the revenue from taxes was deemed robbery. And Jews hated tax collectors so much that, believe it or not, they actually made a ruling, I think in the second century, that you could lie to tax collectors and not be punished for it. Now, some of you think that ruling is still in effect. (laughs) But it's not, Darlene, is it? Jesus, when... Trying to make a point and preaching a parable. It's a story that teaches a spiritual truth. In Luke chapter 18, don't turn there, verses 9 through 11, the text says this, that he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Okay, so he's going to tell them a story, and he's telling them a story to illustrate their stupidity for thinking that A, they're righteous, and B, for the way that they look upon others because they think they're superior to them. So what, what kind of story does he bring up? Verse 10. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee. That's the righteous one. The one who thinks he's righteous. And the other a tax collector. Just stop right there. Oh good, it doesn't have it all up. You can't go farther. That's good. This would be the most scandalous, ridiculous thing to say in a story to the Jews. How dare you, Jesus, even put a Pharisee, the righteous one, and a tax collector in the same story, let alone 
in the same building. It was it was it would have been irate to them. Jesus is just taking it to them by giving this story. He's just pounding them. We read it and we don't see it because we don't understand the culture. We don't understand how much tax collectors were hated and how much Pharisees were revered. But now he says they're both in the temple, verse 11. And the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector, lumped together with pretty vile things. So just to give you an idea, why are you eating with sinners and tax collectors, Jesus? You should know better. Sinners. Let's look at that term. What did they mean by that? The term sinners, and if you have an NIV translation of the Bible, it actually puts it in quotes. And that's a good idea because it's not being used in the term that you and I, the way you and I understand it and the more full biblical definition of it. Sinners. It's actually being used as a technical term by the Pharisees to refer to the common people that were untaught in the law, who did not follow their strict standards coming from their interpretation of God's law and oral tradition passed down to them over the years. So anyone who did not follow in their traditions or keeping of the law and all the rules and regulations that they had interpreted the law said, they would describe them as sinners. Those people. Those people. Now that does not mean that these sinners were good people, okay, and that the Pharisees somehow misidentified them. They are sinners. And the true meaning of the word does apply because if you look at verse 17, chapter 2, Jesus doesn't back away from the idea because he says, Listen, I've come to call sinners those who are sick. There's a direct reference made there a connection between those who are sick and those who are sinners. So Jesus recognizes them to be real, true sinners. Those that are depraved. Those who are separated from God because of their sin. So that's not the issue. The issue that they were sinners is the case. The fact is that the Pharisees were referring to them simply as a group of people that were separated from them because they didn't follow them in their uh, traditions and fulfilling of the law. The real issue that you have to see here, though, under that term, is the Pharisees were unwilling to put themselves in the category of sinners. They were outside of that category. Why? Because they redefined it. They redefined what it meant to be a sinner. The way they defined it was you simply follow all the rules and regulations that we have laid out, and if you do that, you are not a sinner. They had predetermined in their minds that their external, outward, compliance with the law that God had given, according to their rules, their regulations, their interpretations, made them righteous before a holy God. And because of that, they neglected to see their inner corruption, the very corruption that Jesus points out when he says to them, inside of you are dead man's bones. Wickedness. You have an appearance of righteousness. But it's anything but, because your heart is far from me. And so, he responds. And that takes us to verse 17. He responds to their self Righteous question. They are saying to Jesus, Why in the world would you of all people, Jesus, teacher of the law, don't you know better, why would you spend time even dining with and eating with, fellowshipping with those sinners, those who do not walk after our way, and even tax collectors, those that are considered the lowest of the low? Are you kidding me? Why are you eating with them? You should be eating with us. The Pharisees were intoxicated with their own standard of righteousness. Just intoxicated, drunk on it. 
And Jesus' reply should have snapped them out of their stupor. And sadly, it doesn't. But let's look at it. Verse 17. And when Jesus heard their question, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Those who are well. Let's look at this. Well and righteous. Well and righteous. He's using the terms together. Those who are well or healthy or those who are righteous. He's actually using irony here. Jesus said those who are well or healthy. He's not thinking about their physical state. But he used a very well-known proverb of the day, a saying of the day, to really teach his critics a very needed lesson. In other words, the proverb of the day was, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. So they were familiar with it. So he gave it back to them, and now he's going to teach them a lesson through it. What he's saying is, what I mean is those who are righteous, those who are right with God, don't need healing. Or, that is to say, I didn't come for them. Because as a physician, I came for those who are sick or they are sinners. Those who are righteous don't need me any more than a healthy person needs a doctor. Now, was he saying that some of those people there were righteous? Like, there's two types of people on the earth. Those who are righteous... And those who are sinners. And he wasn't coming for the righteous ones because they didn't need him. No. He was not saying that because that would go against the overwhelming evidence in the Bible, in the scriptures, about the condition of our souls. The Bible is very clear that everyone is a sinner. So he was not suggesting that some of the Pharisees just didn't need to spend time with Jesus because they were already good with God. He's being ironic. If there were righteous people, they wouldn't need me. That's what he's saying. Now think about the implications, though. If someone is righteous, right? If that is the case, if someone is actually righteous, beloved, they won't and would not need Christ. Jesus' sacrifice for sin on the cross would not be necessary for them. Do you know why? Because he did not die for good people. Righteous people. He did not die for them. If you were to sit here and believe that you are a good and righteous person, then what Jesus is saying is, then I didn't come for you. Because you obviously don't need me. That's exactly the the opposite of what the Bible says. Here's how the Bible describes you and me. Unrighteous, sinners, and ungodly. Turn just to the right. Romans chapter 5. Page 942 if you're using the church Bible. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 and 8. I want you to see a few things this morning. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 and 8. Here's what Paul says about us. Verse 6, For while we were still weak, another translation says powerless, I think that's a better word, while you were still unable to do anything on your own, the condition was hopeless, you were weak, you were powerless, at the right time, Christ came in, the professional showed up, and died for the ungodly. And then he says this, and by the way, Who's the ungodly? That's us! How do you put good and ungodly in the same sentence? It doesn't make sense. I go around, I talk to people about Jesus Christ. We typically ask this particular question. If you were standing before God and He said, Why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? And more often than not, the answer is, Hey, I'm a pretty good person. Why? Because I'm not a tax collector, or <laughs> they don't usually say that. I haven't killed anybody. I do the best I can. But the Bible doesn't say you're a good person. And if you truly are a good person, then I have some terrible news for you. You don't need Jesus. He didn't come for you. 
He actually came for sinners, for the ungodly. He goes on, verse 7, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. All right, so Paul sets it up. Listen, it is possible that for a righteous person someone would give up their life. Maybe for a good person they would sacrifice for them. That is possible. And then he uses the word but in verse 8. That means there's a contrast coming. And what he's saying is, you're neither righteous or good. You are neither of those. I am neither of those. But God shows His love for us, verse 8, in that while we were still what? Sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still ungodly, Christ died for us. While we were still unrighteous, Christ died. If I were to convince myself that I am healthy, just go with me on this. If I, if I said, I am, I am healthy because I feel fine, or that my physical condition is not that bad, even though all the medical tests I just recently took indicated otherwise, and because of that, I refuse to go to the doctor for treatment, what would you say about me? Dumb. Wow, you guys are very abusive. I just want you to know that. Uh, wise? Would you say, he's really wise. He's really wise. I've heard people give this advice. You know, if you feel fine, you're fine. Really? <laughs> Even if everything else says you're not? Wow, that's kind of stupid. And that's the same thing we do. Hey, if you think you're good with God, you're good with God. Really? Even if the Bible says you're not? Even if all the tests indicate otherwise, even if they say very loud and clearly, you need a Savior, even if Jesus screams it from the cross, I died for you, I had to do this, otherwise you'd be helpless and hopeless and bound for hell. Oh, I'm fine. Arrogant, maybe you would say of me. Hard-headed. Those who are righteous don't need a Savior, beloved. And those who think they're righteous don't seek a Savior. And the problem is, as we've already said, there are none righteous. There are none. Turn back to the left. Romans chapter 3, if you're still there. Page 940, if you lost your place, if you're using a church Bible. This brings us to point two. He says, I came for sinners. I came for sinners. Let me read it to you again. To those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I came for sick people. I came for sinful people. Romans chapter 3, verse 9. The beginning of this chapter starts with the question, is there any advantage to being a Jew? And we can't go into all that. And he says, yes, there is, because they were given the oracles of God, the very words of God. They were responsible for them. So then he says, when we get to verse 9, he says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? Because of our special covenant relationship with God, are we any better off? No. The text says no. Paul says no, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, that means Gentiles, it means us. Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. Is there any other way to interpret that? Can I fit goodness into that? It says, none is righteous, no, not one. Yeah, but, but what about me? No, you, none. None is righteous, no, not one. Yeah, but I do my best to keep the commandments and the law. That's what it says, sister. It says, none. And then... Look down at verse 19. Oh, this will just, just kind of leave you bare and open before the Lord. We go to the law. We go to the law of God and we think by keeping the law of God, that makes us right with God? Well, if we could keep the law of God perfectly with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our soul, then I guess that is a way that we could be made right with God. Whoever has kept the law of God perfectly at all. Well, yes, him. But none of us. That is good. You guys are, you guys are sound. 
This is a good place to be. I'm glad I'm here. You guys are good, man. Look at verse 19. This is what Paul says. He's, he's trying to call his Jewish brethren to some sense because they still think the way to God is through keeping the law. The Pharisees said, you want to be right with God? Do what we do. Jesus comes back and says, are you kidding me? Your heart's far from me. You've never been transformed. You think you're good. But your heart is wicked. You need forgiveness. You need me. You need me, he says in verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. And here's what it says. So that every mouth may be stopped, closed, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. That means accepted in his sight. Why? Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Stop right there. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Here's all the law does. Listen, I'm a, I was born a sinner. I am a sinner. I am, have a proclivity to sin towards sinning. Every human person. So here comes the law. And the law says, you should not covet. That means want your neighbor's stuff. Be greedy. Okay? Great! I've been doing that forever! Now that's a sin too. That's just another example where I've violated the law of God. And so I say, you know what? I'll just try real hard not to covet. But sure enough... I'm coveting again. And all the law does is one after another, like nails in my coffin, convict me right into the grave, driving me, one after another, telling me, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, you're a sinner. Yeah, but I was keeping number two pretty good. Yeah, but you broke three and five and ten. Sinner. Sinner. The law condemns. The law shows us clearly the holy character and nature of God. Make no mistake about it. It shows our unholy character and sinful nature of humanity. It should drive us to the cross. It should cause us to dial 911 immediately. The Pharisees should have been saying, Jesus, we need you too. We're just as jacked up as these tax collectors and sinners. We've been doing everything we can to keep the law, but our hearts are far from you. Every time we turn around, we have another sinful thought. We lust. We have greed. And we've been putting up a show and we're tired. They didn't do that, beloved. And look at verse 21. This is awesome. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, what is the righteousness of God? How has it been displayed? Here it is, verse 22. The righteousness of God comes through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. What Paul is saying is we are declared righteous through placing our faith in the righteous one. That is how we are made righteous. He says again, adding in verse 22, there is no distinction, there is no difference between Jew or Greek. Anyone who believes in the righteousness of Christ, in the forgiveness of sins accomplished on the cross, is not only forgiven, but declared righteous in His sight. Made right. Justified. Accepted. Why? Because of their own righteousness? Hardly. We have none. But by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He says, For all have sinned, that is everyone, and they fall short of the glory of God, and they are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. One more passage. Turn over to Romans 10. I want you to see this. I don't want you to miss it. Romans 10, page 946, verse 1. So, Paul had a burden for his people. Paul was a Jew. Paul was also a Pharisee before he was redeemed by Christ. He knows what they're going through. He knows their struggles. He knows how hard it is for them to break free from this stupidity of thinking that they can be made right with God by simply keeping the law. They can't because they continue to break it inwardly. They may outwardly look like they're keeping the law, but God is after the heart. 
He's after the heart. So he says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them. Who's them? His Jewish brethren that are still lost in their sins. My heart for them is that they might be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal, a passion for God, but not according to knowledge. In other words, it's, it's an incorrect zeal. They're zealous about the law. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God, and here it is, seeking to establish their own, their own, you understand that? What they're attempting to do is make themselves righteous before God. Make themselves acceptable. Being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. What is that? Verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. He's it. You want to be declared righteous in the sight of God? You want to be made right with Him? It is faith in Jesus Christ. Not only are you forgiven of your sins through the work that He accomplished on the cross, but you then are credited with His righteousness. Do you understand that? You receive His righteousness. God looks upon you through your faith in Jesus Christ and says, righteous. Because of your righteousness? No. 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 Because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So when I stand before God and He says, why should I let you into my heaven? I dare not ever say, because I'm a good person. Because let me list all the things that I've done in the name of God. Oh, there are so many. I don't know if you have the time, God, but I know you're going to be impressed. Well, if you did all that, I guess I didn't need to kill my son. No, I'm going to stand before him and say, the only reason you should let me in is because I've now been clothed in the righteousness of your son, Jesus Christ. I declare his righteousness. I, I have none. I have, I have a long list of sins. That's what I have. That's all I brought to this situation. He died for those sins, so God, you don't have to punish me for them because you punish Him for them. Every single one of them, God, you punished your son for. And that man right there, he lived a perfect and holy life, the one I'll never, ever live, the one I couldn't possibly live because I was born a sinner. He did it. He kept the law perfectly. And now through faith, you say that I am declared righteous that I now have received His righteousness. Look at this, God. I'm wearing the robe of righteousness given to me by Christ. That's why you've got to let me in. I'm righteous because of Christ. I'm forgiven because of Christ. See? But, beloved, I know there's you out there right now. I know it. I know that you are thinking like the Pharisee. You are thinking like the Pharisee. With my righteousness, I'm going to... I'm going to earn my way into heaven. You know, Jesus did his part. Now I've got to do mine. What? There is no 50-50 deal here. There is no 80-20 deal. It's not 80% Jesus and 20% you. It's always and always will be 100% Jesus. His forgiveness, his righteousness. Brings us to point three. And we've got to finish here quick. It says that he called them. He called them. It's a sober reply. He's calling them. He doesn't come to call the righteous, but He comes to call sinners, those who are sick. Well, what's He going to call them? Well, a parallel account in Luke chapter 5, verse 32, includes the word repentance. So if you read that, we know what He's calling them to is repentance. Listen, Jesus says, I didn't come to call the righteous, but I came to call sinners to repentance. It's the same message he's been preaching since Mark chapter 1, verse 15. Repent and believe in the gospel. Nothing's new. This is what I've come to do. So what does that mean, repent? Acknowledge you're a sinner, that you are helpless to fix yourself. That's what it means. That you can't measure up to God's perfect standard. That you are not righteous. You are not. I am not. And turn to Jesus that you might be saved from the wrath to come. Don't delay. Your situation is desperate. You can't handle it on your own. You pick up the phone and you dial 911 because you're about to die. And you can't get out of this on your own. Your friends can't help you. 
and you can't help yourself. You won't get through this. You won't get through this. Your condition is serious. One commentator says this, Jesus' call to salvation, or Jesus' call is to salvation, and in order to share in it, there must be a recognition of need. A self-righteous man is incapable of recognizing that need. But a sinner can. It would, be a true, it would be true to say that this word of Jesus really strikes the keynote of the gospel. The new thing in Christianity is not that the doctrine that God saves sinners. No Jew would disagree with that, that God saves sinners. It is the assertion that God loves and saves them as sinners. This is the authentic and glorious doctrine of true Christianity in any age. So let me apply this a little bit to you this morning. For some, you just need to, you just, you have never even put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You're still trusting in your righteousness. You're no different than the Pharisees. You're still wondering why even Jesus is necessary. Really, come on. I'm not that bad of a person. You are. I am. It was so bad that Jesus had to die on a cross to deal with it. He had to be brutalized and then punished by his father. Something you and I will never be able to fully comprehend. That's how bad my sin was. That's how bad your sin was. So some of you just flat out need to come clean. You are a sinner in need of God's grace and salvation through Jesus Christ. Stop messing around. Hit 911 and receive the help that he offers. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord... They will be saved. They will be saved. For some of us, we are believers in Jesus Christ. And here's, here's where the rub comes. The longer, I be, the longer I live as a believer, as a Christian in Jesus that doesn't even make sense. The longer I live as a Christian, Ray, help me, brother. The longer I live as a Christian, the more aware I become of how great a debt I owe. Of just what it meant that Jesus Christ died for me. Of just how sinful of a sinner I am. See, Paul says this. This is Paul. Just listen. The Apostle Paul. The one who wrote a majority of the New Testament, a good portion of it, the Pharisee of Pharisees, the one that everyone looked up to, he says this in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And then he says this, of whom I am the foremost. <laughs> what? But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost... Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. And then you know what? Paul can't help it. He breaks out in praise. It's called a doxology in verse 17. To the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul breaks out in praise because he, he is reminded again of just what Jesus had accomplished for him. A sinner that was helpless and weak and powerless and would certainly face the wrath of God without the grace of Jesus Christ. That's what he's coming into contact with. And beloved, to the degree that you understand that and comprehend that will be the degree to which you willingly serve him. That you willingly sacrifice for him. Some people say, I don't know, I just don't feel any burden to really read the Bible, to pray, to even go to church on a regular basis. And yet they say they're Christians. And I say there's either one or two things going on. Either A, you don't, you're not a Christian, that's a possibility, so you need to think those things through. Or two, you don't really understand what Jesus did for you. You really don't, do you? See, if I think that I had a boo-boo and Jesus was my band-aid, but you know, the reality is the boo-boo would have got better on its own. You don't really need a band-aid, do you, when you have a boo-boo? I mean, it's nice. It'll heal a little bit faster. But yeah, thanks, Jesus. Thanks for the help. It was appreciated and all that. If that's the way I see Jesus in any way, 
then how much am I going to be willing to sacrifice for him? How much am I going to be willing to go the distance for him? How in love will I be with him? He just gave me a band-aid. Mom used to give me a band-aid. But that is not what Jesus did. If I see that Jesus gave me an organ, he was an organ transplanter. He gave me his organ, and without it, I was certainly a dead man. You tell me how grateful people are that are waiting on an organ transplant list for years. And finally, someone says, I'll give you my kidney. I'll give you, well, I don't usually give their heart away. That comes after they die. But people do give their kidneys, but they willingly say, you take my organ. Let me ask you something. How grateful will they be for that individual? How grateful? As opposed to the nurse who just comes in and gives you a band-aid. Yeah. Is there anything, anything I can do for you? Because if it wasn't for you, I would be a dead man. You saved me through your sacrifice. See? That's first. You need to come to grips. You need to meditate upon the position, the serious and awful position you were in before God and what Jesus Christ did for you. And the more you understand that, the more in love you will fall with God. And no one will have to tell you to read your Bible. No, you will want to read it. No one will have to tell you to pray. You will be consumed. Little by little. Not overnight. Little by little. And the last one is this. Failure to recognize your sinful condition and your supreme need for Christ will make you judgmental of others. Self-righteousness will take a hold of your soul and as a result, you will be less likely to take the good news of Jesus to others. You know why? Because you'll be too busy judging them. Tax collectors and sinners. Ugh. Because you fail to recognize you were just as bad off as them before you came to Christ. Garland says, this guy says, We sing amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. You know the song? But we have in mind only our kind of wretches. It is too amazing for some that the same grace is extended to save those whom we believe truly deserve punishment. Beloved, you and I truly deserve punishment. It is by the grace of God and the grace of God alone that we can even stand before God, that we can bring our prayers before God, that we can sing praises to Him, that we can live for Him. We are not going to close with the final song as we've done later, but I will close with prayer. Father God, I thank You for this time and I thank You for Your Word. And Father, work in our hearts, work in all of our hearts. There are some here, I am certain, that do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. They do not yet have faith in His sacrifice alone to make them right with You. They are still, to some degree, trusting in what they have done or what they're going to do or how they're going to make things right one day. Failing to realize that trying to keep the law is futile. It only condemns them more before You. Father, may they see the freedom of running to the cross and bearing themselves in Jesus and finding their forgiveness of sins, peace with You, freedom from guilt, never coming under Your condemnation because Jesus paid it all. And Father, finding there the righteousness of Your Son, that they might be clothed in that, that that might give them the ability to come before You and to live with You forever in heaven, not their own righteousness. And may that, Father, motivate them and us who know Jesus as Lord and Savior. May it motivate us to give ourselves to You completely out of just sheer gratitude and incredible love. For we love because You first loved us. And when we realize the depth and the cost and the sacrifice of that love, how could we not respond in love. How could we not? And Father, help us as Your people to readily, eh, readily, to constantly go back to the cross and to remember our sin and how You have died for it so that we never become haughty or high-minded or judgmental looking down upon others. But as one man said, we are simply beggars telling another beggar where we got our bread. May we be about 
that. May we share the good news. May we see them as those who are lost and their condition is serious. And may we reach out to rescue them by bringing them the good news of Jesus Christ, not coming to condemn them. Father, that is your business and yours alone. We pray these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.